The following is an exclusive podcast for the Dermatology Digest. We're here today with Drs. George Martin and Ted Rosen to talk about considerations when prescribing a systemic therapy in atopic dermatitis, which is part three of the Dermatology Digest's in-depth coverage of JAK inhibitors. Dr. Martin is founder of Maui Derm Dermatology Meetings and the Dermatology Digest's executive editor. Dr. Rosen is professor of dermatology at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston and editor-in-chief of the Dermatology Digest. Thank you for joining us today, Drs. Martin and Rosen. Good to be here. So Jackson atopic dermatitis, why do we need them? So like so many things, obviously we've had treatments before. This isn't uh, a, a disease that had no therapies at all, but I think we can always do better. That's the goal in one way or another, either more efficacious or safer or whatever. And just very briefly, think about what we did for atopic dermatitis that required systemic therapy in the past, right? Cyclosporin was my favorite rescue drug. I think it was Dr. Martin's as well. But you know, there's a time limit on it. There's a potential for hypertension, renal toxicity. Uh, a lot of dermatologists never ever used it even for psoriasis. Then we had things like azathioprine, about one in three patients who get started on that drug stop it because of side effects. Great drug, but some serious problems. Methotrexate has a whole bunch of black box warnings. It is a sometimes difficult drug to give and tolerance is always not so great. Uh, we could use mycophenolate. I love mycophenolate, mofetil, but it's slow. It's like a turtle. It takes forever to work. And because it's slow and maybe a little safer, it's not as efficacious. And there's always phototherapy. Uh, in Houston, that's a little difficult to do. The city's 65 miles across each way. So coming to the center of the city where there are the only phototherapy units or very most of them anyhow, uh, it's just not convenient. Plus it's travel time, time away from work or home or kids or whatever. Yes, all those therapies worked, but all of them had significant downsides and all of them sometimes didn't work. So between side effects and downsides and inconvenience, we needed other drugs. And that brought us to George six years ago, revolution. Revolution. Um, I think when I query other dermatologists who practice as long as we have, and I ask them to name two drugs that changed the way they practice dermatology, isotretinoin Accutane was one. It fulfilled an unmet need. And the, the introduction of dipilomat for atopic dermatitis clearly was a total game changer, a career changer in the way in which we're able to treat atopic dermatitis. And now in the space of two months, starting in December and, and ending up in January, we have the introduction of an IL-13 specific monoclonal antibody in trilokinumab. And, and in January, we get two JAK1 inhibitors, uh, abracitinib and apatacitinib, that are absolutely amazing and much to my surprise, based on comparator data, as good or better than dupilumab, which has heretofore been our gold standard. And, and I do think that dupilumab has been 
relatively well accepted by the dermatology community because it's really other than conjunctivitis. Um, it's a pretty safe drug to give lab testing, not required really. So this is a good drug. I think it's downside, if you want to call it that, is its efficacy. It's, it's not the most efficacious drug. And there are some people who have flares of something, might be AD, might be fungal, but they have flares while, especially on the face, while they're on the drug. So it's not a bad drug. It's a good drug. It's a great drug. Change things. But we could do better. And in fact, we may have done just that. What are some of the nuances of Jax? Well, um, first of all, there are four Jacks. There's Jack 1, 2, and 3, and Tick 2. Um, and they're signal transduction molecules. So when a cytokine binds to the surface of a cell, targeted cell, they transmit the signal to the nucleus of the cell and, and genes are transcribed. And then you have the outpouring of uh, cytokines and chemokines and other molecules. So um, it turns out that the JAKSTAT pathway controls about 50 different cytokines. Uh, and many of those are, uh, have to do with inflammation. They have to do with immune recruitment. They also have to do with the hematopoietic system, which when we do our JAK therapies, blocking those could potentially get in the way. And, and so as we think about our skin diseases and when we look at the different JAKs that we can block, blocking JAK1 made, a total, uh, made total sense. Uh, because JAK1 is the signaling molecule uh, for important cytokines like IL-13, for which we have a monoclonal antibody uh, that's specific for that. Uh, it, it blocks IL-4, and as we know, dupilumab blocks IL-4 and IL-13, but it also JAKs inhibit TSLP, which recruits lymphocytes. It blocks IL-31, that's really important in itch, and it blocks a, a bunch of other cytokines that really are very important in atopic dermatitis. Um, Another nuance is that, you know, JAK1 and 2 um, block gamma interferon. And gamma interferon is the major cytokine uh, for atopic, uh, for uh, alopecia areata and for vitiligo. So we're seeing incredible data uh, with baricitinib, a JAK1, 2 inhibitor for the treatment of alopecia areata. And that phase three data has just been released, very exciting. And we have ruxolitinib, a topical JAK1, 2 for the treatment of vitiligo. And we're seeing really, really strong efficacious results in the treatment of vitiligo. Lastly, um, when you look at the, the JAK uh, uh, STAT pathway, you particularly look at TIC2. Well, TIC2 is the mediator for IL-12 and 23. And we know IL-23 is the master cytokine in psoriasis. And so we have a molecule with phase three data uh, in Ducravacidinib that allosterically blocks TIC2 and has produced amazing results uh, PASI 100 scores uh, with a JAK. So there are nuances to which JAK you block and which cytokine you'll affect. But again, remember that JAK-STAT pathway controls over 50 inflammatory and immunomodulating signals in dermatology. And so also just, we're gonna talk about side effects, potential adverse events uh, very shortly, but just in the same vein, just like the jacks are not a, a homogeneous group of things, just like a Ford is not a Bentley, they're cars, but that's what they have in common, right? So to say that 
okay, if we give you a JAK inhibitor, you're going to be subject to XYZ adverse offense, not really generalizable because just like they are very important for which cytokines they ultimately block, which means which diseases, which JAKs are involved with, same thing with side effects. The, the TIC2, for example, seems to be, at least based on the data we have so far, incredibly free of side effects. So you can't generalize. And I know it's going to be a lot of work for all of us, including me, to, to remember which JAKs go with which cytokines and therefore which diseases. But it's, it's vitally important that you don't paint too broad a swath, the thinking of them all in one big box because they're simply not. So for those of you out there who golf, it's kind of like golfing. I mean, you have a putter and you have a, a driver and in between you have all these woods and irons and each one has their own application. And so we're going to think about jacks today as being very specific targeted molecules. And so we're going to jump into that. What about the tofacitinib legacy? Um, and, and what did that do to the black box warning? So unfortunately, and this refers to exactly what I just said, we're talking about adverse events now. And there was a year long study, it was called the oral study. And it really was involving only tofacitinib. And you have to understand tofacitinib at therapeutic doses even is sort of a pan-JAK inhibitor primarily JAK1 and 3, but it can block all. Remember, Dr. Martin already pointed out, there's JAK1, 2, 3, and TIC2. And at high enough doses, tofacitinib is a pan-JAK. So its side effects cannot necessarily be generalizable to other JAK inhibitors that are more selective in which JAKs they block. Well, in this study, which also only involved older individuals, mostly over 50. Now, thinking about atopic dermatitis, which is really our subject for today. Yes, there are people over 50 who have atopic dermatitis. It's important to point out that adults can have atopic dermatitis. Some of them, it's about 7%, some of them have had atopic dermatitis from childhood years, but somewhere around one in four or so adults developed atopic dermatitis as adults. So yes, you can have atopic dermatitis over 50, but if you're gonna do a study and you're thinking about trying to apply the results of that study, most of our atopic dermatitis, even the adult patients, tend to be younger than that. And that study also was involving rheumatoid arthritis patients who we all know are not exactly the same thing as atopic dermatitis patients on multiple levels. They have a much different immune sort of setup than atopic dermatitis, even so much as is it a Th1 or a Th2 cytokine-driven disease. Rheumatoid arthritis is Th1 atopic dermatitis, mostly TH2. So here's this study looking at long-term problems with tofacitinib in older people, only tofacitinib in older people with rheumatoid arthritis 
And many of them, if not all of them, had at least one pre-existing cardiovascular risk. That is a study that's destined to give you some results that are somewhat negative. And a lot of that then translated into an expanded black box warning with that broad swath that I tried to warn you about really early on in this discussion. So because you found something with tofacitinib in people over 50 who had rheumatoid arthritis doesn't necessarily apply to giving a non-tofacitinib JAK inhibitor to a 28-year-old who's got atopic dermatitis. They're different groups of people. And among the things that ended up in the black box warning in large part because of that study included increased all-cause mortality, increased major cardiovascular events like MI, stroke, increased risk of cancer, increased risk of infections. You think about that. Think about your patient. And I don't know necessarily about every patient, but some of my patients actually read that little package insert and they see these horrible black box warnings right at the start based upon this study that wasn't necessarily applicable to the JAK inhibitor that they just picked up at the drugstore. And it really sounds scary. I mean, I forgot one, uh, deep venous uh, thrombosis, pulmonary embolism, even arterial thrombosis, so thrombo, uh, thrombotic events. So you see this whole list of these potential side effects and it looks like, oh my God, I'm not gonna take this drug, I'm gonna die. I'd rather have atopic dermatitis. But that study leading to an expanded black box warning just doesn't really apply word for word to all the other drugs that we've got now luckily, but that black, black box warning even appears on topical ruxolitinib on its package insert. So you're putting on a cream and you're thinking, oh my God, I'm going to have a stroke from this cream. I'm not going to do that. And that's really sad. And which means that it's our job, my job, Dr. Martin's job, your job to explain this. It takes a little time to patients. If they happen to read that black box warning, put it in a proper context. It wasn't, it's just like the black box warning about cancer with topical calcineurin inhibitors. Well, yeah, if you feed massive amounts of calcineurin inhibitors to monkeys, one in 50 gets a lymphoma, that doesn't mean it has anything to do with reality in terms of using a topical calcineurin inhibitor on someone with atopic dermatitis. It's the same thing all over again. You are going to have to explain this to your patients. Yeah, thanks, Ted. And, and that's the legacy that all of the new jacks coming out have inherited. They've inherited tofacidinib, which is basically a pan jack at 10 milligrams twice a day. And, and all of the problems that are inherited from that drug, because that drug is now 10 years old in a space like rheumatoid arthritis. They also treat uh, psoriatic arthritis and, and uh, ulcerative colitis and ankylosing spondylitis. So you have a bunch of auto-inflammatory diseases with an enriched population, more prone, particularly in rheumatoid arthritis, to strokes, DVTs, MACE events. And, and uh, unfortunately, the newer jacks have inherited that legacy. And as you pointed out, even a topical. So it's a, I have a great time 
uh, talking to patients whose, whose parents have read the package insert and are worried about their son having a heart attack from a topical. And now granted, ruxolitinib is absorbed and, uh, and that's why there's that sort of 20% maximum body use and intermittent usage, but that's where we are right now. So let's ferret out, why are we even bringing JAX into this discussion, Ted? And if it wasn't for the fact that this new class of molecules can reach out to pretty much any disease state in dermatology we have, certainly the inflammatory disease states, but they're highly, highly effective. And, and to and that point, yeah. Just a quick comment. We're, we're talking about atopic dermatitis here. That's the, the purpose of our discussion. But there is already data. Yeah, it's anecdotal. It's not a big double-blind controlled placebo trial. But there's already data showing JAX do a wonderful job in things as diverse as sarcoid and granuloma annulari. So these drugs have the potential to revolutionize what we do. So we need to approach them very thoughtfully. Absolutely. And so now we have our hands on two JAK1s, abracidinib and apatacidinib. Um, and what they did was when they went through their initial phase three trials, they very intelligently did a comparator against our gold standard, dupilumab. In the case of, of apatacidinib, as I mentioned previously, it outperformed in atopic dermatitis dupilumab for every metric, whether it was easy 75, 90, or 100, um, itch reduction, quite amazing. And abracidinib, even though not powered, the 200 milligram dose uh, taken once daily was as effective or more effective numerically than dupilumab. So now we have two JAK1s in play um, and abracidinib is approved for 18 and older and upatacidinib is approved for individuals 12 years old and, uh, and older. And they stack up very well uh, in this, uh, in comparing them to biologics such as dupilumab so Ted, as we think about the mix and match, and now we've got, uh, we've got a fourth molecule in play, and that's trelokinumab, a selective IL-13 inhibitor. We have two biologics, we have two JAKs, and we have a patient in front of us who clearly needs systemic therapy. And you have, and you have a parent who's basically done their homework. How do you present biologic versus a, a JAK, an oral JAK, and you have a 17 year old child and his parents sitting in front of you. What do you do? So, so I think the first thing to do, you, it has to be a joint decision. It has to be everybody involved, parent, or if it's an adult, the, the patient, the adult patient, and you give them information. You can always slant things a little bit, but I think it has to be straightforward. First thing is age. You've already mentioned age, but we didn't talk about dupilumab, which is down to six years age now. So if you have someone six, eight, nine, you're, none of the other drugs are going to qualify, right? So you have apatacitinib is 12 and the other two, Trelo and, and abracitinib are 18. I assume they'll do studies to bring those ages down. Dupilumab originally was adults 18 of age and older, then it came down to 12, then it came down to six. And it may come down all the way to two at some point that's being looked at, mm -hmm. but there is an age cutoff. And I don't think I would violate that. I, I think you need to stay in those guidelines. Um, you probably wouldn't get insurance to pay for it. Anyhow, they look for any excuse not to, and there's one excuse, but first thing is certainly age. 
I don't think you can get away with that. Second thing is the delivery, right? You do Pilumab and Trelo. Can you map our injections and our avrocitinib and patacitinib are pills? I used to think when the biologics came out for psoriasis that it would be very difficult to have self-injectables. And you know, when a lot of them came out with long, thick needles on syringes that the patients had to draw up, it kind of was. But now with self-injectors, that's easy as pie. So I think ultimately anybody can be taught to give themselves an injection, either with a pen or without a pen, they can do it. And, and it's not as big a problem as I originally envisioned, but there are some people who are incredibly needle phobic. I mean, really needle phobic and they need a pill and you've got two pills that are now approved. So age and delivery are the first things to talk about. And then we have a bunch of other things that we might use to distinguish. George, you want to take a couple and then I'll take a couple more. Yeah, um, my biggest concern is women of childbearing years. So Ted, let's, let's talk briefly about the uh, 26-year-old woman in front of you with severe atopic dermatitis who clearly needs systemic therapy. And we're gonna talk about to a woman who probably, in, in, and what we know from the data is that half of pregnancies are unplanned, right? And most women don't know they're pregnant until four to six weeks into it. We do know that these uh, jacks cross the placenta and we do know that biologics take about until week 13, at which point they become uh, transported actively across the placenta. So you have a little bit of leeway with the biologics until about week 13, but remember their half-life could extend out to that. So remember that, that the jacks will cross the placenta right away from, from the time of conception and that biologics take until week 13 to get across the placenta. Again, you have a, a woman in front of you who may or may not get pregnant down the road. So you have to have this discussion. And, and I, I, quite frankly, it's like with regard to Jack's and the current recommendations, that individual should be on some form of reliable birth control, flat out. Uh, with regard to biologics, um, we have a little bit of leeway uh, and the data through pregnancy with the biologic and particularly the longest uh, standing biologic dupilumab, um, it, there's not tremendous guidance, but at the same time, uh, the monkey data, if you wanna rely on that, uh, looks very favorable. They have given monkeys uh, dupilumab all the way through their pregnancies, and they did fine. And, and the registry data so far um, looks pretty favorable as far as, um, as, as uh, dupilumab is concerned. With regard to the JAKs, our longest standing registry data comes from tofacidinib. And, and I, you know, when I really began to do, do a deep dive on it, I was really... Um, I was really perplexed because I was getting mixed messages. Um, when you look at the data on, on tofacidinib, uh, what you find is that half the births or more are, do just fine. Um, there's about a quarter who electively uh, terminate the pregnancy. And when you look at the background uh, you know, uh, miscarriage rate and you look at uh, things like that, um, it doesn't appear to be much different than the baseline incidence of uh, uh, severe birth deformities, which can be about two or 3%, and miscarriages fall to the rate of 15 to 20%. So to that point, the ACR in its 2020 pregnancy and lactation guidelines, which they call the reproductive guidelines for, uh, for musculoskeletal diseases, with regard to tofacidinib, 
they weren't able to provide guidance. Like they were conflicted and they really said, we don't know what to tell you in essence. Now the European league a couple of years earlier said, no, no tofacidinib in pregnancy, women and childbearing years, just don't do it. So in essence, I think it's, uh, it's sort of, I just tell my patients, like if uh, don't get pregnant while you're on this medication, uh, we don't have long-term pregnancy data. And, and I treat them no differently initially than you would have someone who were considering starting on methotrexate, cyclosporin, uh, things like that. So I just on reliable birth control. What, what's your take, Ted? Yeah, I, I think that's, you have to have a certain amount of rapport with the patient, a certain amount of trust. All medical practice is really built on trust. And I tell them, I do not want you to get pregnant. I want you on a reliable method of contraception. We all know reliable methods of contraception fail. There's an inherent uh, failure rate, even with oral contraceptives and with barrier contraceptives, even if you use two of them, uh, a foam and a, a condom, um, there's a failure rate. So you cannot guarantee that someone won't get pregnant, even if they're on reliable contraception. And then in the heat of the moment, reliable contraception may not be used or might be forgotten, or they might have somebody might be on a nice trip and forgot their oral contraceptives at home. And, you know, anyhow, it happens. So, but yes, I, I asked them to be on a reliable form of contraception and importantly, remember it should be documented. If you're going to do that and you're going to trust women of childbearing potential, then you have to document, you have warned them. And if that doesn't happen, and if they get pregnant, we don't know what the outcome is going to be. Nobody can tell you. And they may choose to terminate that pregnancy because of that uncertainty. It really, it depends on what they did, not that you did not warn them, except after the fact. That's really important. Document. I agree. And, and remember, the, the, the most robust set of pregnancy data comes from our pan jack, our most powerful jack, and that's tofacidinib. We, these two molecules, upatacidinib, uh, you know, first approved in RA back in 18, and, and now abracidinib, um, you know, uh, is, is relatively new to the game. We just don't have the registry data to comment. But the good news is that I, I was really kind of surprised at the, the registry data showing that half the pregnancies had normal, healthy deliveries, and that the background you know, with this drug tofacitinib was really not that bad. And so if someone says, I'm going to push through on the pregnancy, at least you have some registry data to say, you know, things may turn out okay. And to the point, the ACR didn't say, oh, you know, like, oh my gosh, this is not like methotrexate or certainly not like, uh, you know, we're dealing with patients with uh, isotretinoin, Ted, who get pregnant at, at an alarming rate. So, you know, just to put it in context and um, I'm going to jump now onto the next question is that, you know, we have all this legacy black box warning on MACE events and PEs and DVTs. And, and, uh, and so just give me your, your final take on that, Ted. I know we've covered this in some, some length already. Yeah. I, I think you just have to think about who's at risk baseline, right? So who's at risk for, let's say MACE events, people who are obese, people who have hyperlipidemia, people who've had past MACE events, people who have a stent, you know, these are the folks who are likely to have another one. And whether you believe that the oral study applies to other jacks or not, people at high risk already 
probably, unless your back's against the wall, should not receive uh, a JAK inhibitor. Now, again, you can take your chances, but think about who's at risk. Who's at risk for DVTs, right? People who are not very active, they're very, very sedentary. People who are women who are on estrogen dominant uh, oral contraceptives. I don't know that there's data, but I mean, just another group. Think about transgender people who are on estrogen dominant uh, hormones. Uh, maybe that's a problem too. Um, people who are smokers. We know smokers get more DVT, smokers get more MACE events, smokers get more cancer. That's another one, right? Lung cancer in particular. So if they're heavy smokers, if they've had a past any kind of thrombotic event, um, if they're obese, if they're on estrogen dominant hormones for some reason or another, those would be the ones I would seriously consider either not giving it to them, or if you do, very, very strongly document in your chart. And I would even go so far when I go against common sense, that's common sense. You go against common sense. I have people sign an informed consent that says, I told you that this is a risk. We're doing this because your AD is horrible. Your quality of life is horrible. We tried XYZ and it didn't work. And we know these drugs are good, but this is a risk. And I want you to sign here to say you, I've explained these risks, not just DVT or MACE, all of the ones we, we have and are going to talk about and put that in your chart. And that's a point well taken, Ted. And, and I think our viewers have to really understand that um, when the safety data, particularly with DVT and, and PEs came out with tofacitinib, you're dealing with a patient population that has a already higher risk because of the disease state of PEs and DVT and adding something on top of that. Now, it turns out that Jonathan Silverberg did this really nice study, large meta-analysis network study on, on all the inflammatory diseases in dermatology. And with regard to atopic dermatitis, did not find any increased risk of PE DVT among the, this large hospital population. They kind of took a look at uh, this large population. So with regard to atopic dermatitis, patients are not inherently at higher risk for PE DVT just by having atopic dermatitis. It turned out that if you were older, say older than 50, that risk went up. So I think if we took, take a look at atopic dermatitis patient, they're inherently not at risk for atopic dermatitis. It's really the age factor that comes into play. Far, far different than a rheumatoid arthritis patient inherently. Now you mentioned cancer, Ted. Yes, um, I, was just gonna, I was just gonna talk about that just very briefly and then you can certainly chime in. Uh, again, I think it's common sense someone who's had a cancer, and I do, I do the same thing for the biologic drugs, even though the data over years now has not shown a, a terrible increased risk for cancer, but someone who had breast cancer, prostate cancer, lung cancer two years ago, past cancer, I might consider not doing a jack. Someone who's had lymphoma two years ago, I might not consider using a jack. You know, I think past cancer, strong genetic predisposition towards cancer, strong family history, mother, father, sibling with cancer. I might think twice about using the drugs. And if I did, I certainly would get my informed consent. And smokers, again, I go back to the smokers because we know smokers have an inherent risk, increased risk of lung cancer. So 
is it the jack inhibitor or is it the smoking you know is it memorex or is it real and the bottom line is you don't know and you don't want to put your patient at increased risk so smokers past history of cancer and to me very very strong likelihood of genetic predisposition to cancer. Those are the patients I'd be careful about. Now I'm going to uh, talk about the patients uh, who might be at risk for serious infection, something in your wheelhouse, Ted, um, you know, everything from TB on down the line. Um, uh, tell me what your thoughts are. Um, and, and when you have patients sitting in front of you, maybe someone who lives in like an area of Houston with a high endemic TB rate, um, we know that atopic dermatitis patients have a higher risk of uh, underlying asthma. And, you know, when asthmatics get sick with respiratory infections, they really get sick, including COVID. So updating the vaccines is a good idea. But give me your take when you got somebody in front of you with who's at risk for uh, an infection. So, I mean, again, common sense, if someone has an infection, that's not the time to, to start a JAK inhibitor, right? They come in and yes, they have atopic dermatitis and they scratched and they have a boil the size of a baseball on their neck. No, not now, right? Active infection would be a direct, to me, a contraindication. When that active infection heals and without history of I've had boils every day for the rest of my life, okay, maybe you can consider it, but not during active infection. And then it's the same kind of diseases that you worry about. Now, it is true that in, for example, in psoriatics, there is an increased risk of rare and unusual infections, but that risk is very small. If you look at a thousand patient years worth of exposure, it's one or two. It happens, but it's small. And I think you have to balance your risk. But what are you really worried about the most? It's not listeria. It's not Tsutsumaguchi fever. It's things like hepatitis B hepatitis C, tuberculosis. And while I don't think we have quite the data and the JAK inhibitors that we did for the TNF alpha inhibitors, for example, where they were used willy-nilly in Europe in particular without even thinking about it, where there's a high risk, high rate of tuberculosis and we found reactivation of latent TB, I think we need to worry about it. So I think from the outset, you rule out these kind of chronic smoldering, they may even be asymptomatic, they may be latent infections, but they're not gone, they're not healed, they're not forever gone, gone, gone. So things like hepatitis B, hepatitis C, latent TB um, would be the things I'd worry about the most, along with any active infection. That's where I would take the time to get the appropriate lab screening for each of those kind of things. Hepatitis C, serology, um, hepatitis B surface antigen is my go-to, but I also get uh, a core antibody because you can use the two of them to figure out what the status of the patient is. And a quant gold, exactly what we use now for, for TB. You're gonna get some blood work anyhow. So looking for those chronic infections, I think is reasonable. Yeah. And um, so, Ted, uh, going back in time when uh, we were prepared to launch TOFA 
in, in the derm space, uh, there was a zoster signal that was picked up, particularly in the Japanese subgroup, and that was well-defined and, and is still a consideration. So give me your thoughts on vaccinations for your AD patients uh, as we move into the JAK world. Right. So, I mean, you have to keep in mind that about one in three American adults are going to get zoster anyhow. So there's a big background, just like we talked about with congenital malformations, there's a background to consider. Are you increasing that risk? Probably some. So the things that we would normally vaccinate against anyhow, they're recommended, and I don't remember all of them, but you can certainly look at those things, talk to their primary care provider if need be, make sure their vaccinations are up to date. I would give no live vaccinations to anybody who's on a JAK inhibitor if they need a live vaccination. That, that comes in, in play in a few very select situations. So um, they get it beforehand. Anything that they would routinely get, not because if it's not a live vaccine, it's not that it's dangerous if they're on a JAK inhibitor, it's that the vaccine may not work because they won't get the immune response to the vaccine. So anything, pneumococcal vaccine, influenza vaccine, you know, certainly bring up your COVID vaccine up to date. If they're going off to wherever and they need hepatitis vaccine, if they haven't already had it, get that. Yellow fever vaccine, if you're going to Brazil, you know, every vaccine they reasonably need should be done before they start on a JAK inhibitor. And then on a case-by-case -case basis, you can get vaccines while they're on it, but I would not guarantee the vaccine's efficacy. Yeah, and, and, and to your point, Ted, when we were looking at early on at the SARS-CoV-2 uh, vaccines, uh, the platforms, and um, early on, that we, we were looking at what, what cytokines did they upregulate? Um, and it was clear that TNF, IL-6, and interferon gamma uh, were upregulated strongly. It turned out IL-4, uh, uh, particularly IL-13, were not upregulated. Uh, so it's, it's clear that with the JAK1 and 2, that you will suppress uh, with a JAK the vaccine uh, uptake and, and antibody formation if the patient's on the JAK in and around the time they're, they're getting their JAK. So, um, you know, to your point, I think that the vaccine most commonly given in today's world is, is the COVID vaccines and, uh, and rightfully so. But again, other things, pneumococcal vaccines, again, remain, reminding yourself that, hey, your patient has probably asthma and a pneumococcal pneumonia and asthma do not turn out well together. Um, Couple of uh, other disease states, uh, in renal impairment and hepatic impairment, sort of end-stage disease. I, I know we have some, some cutoffs for, for dosing requirements, uh, but prior to end-stage disease, it looks like we can adjust doses on these two jacks. Right. And, and again, we, we haven't mentioned that dose, dose adjustment, and that is important from a therapeutic standpoint, right? You can start off with 15 milligrams and go up to 30 milligrams of abro is it Avro? Yeah, and 100. Upa. Yeah. yeah, UPA. And you can go to 100 and go up to 200 with Avro. So you can uh, change those doses. And there is increased efficacy with the higher dose. So you have dose adjustment built in, which is pretty cool. Um, but again, you, you have to also think about I'm giving a larger dose. Am I increasing risk? 
So you have to have that discussion with your patient. We haven't quite gotten where we want to, even though this is a great drug, let's go up on the dose. But that's not only allowable, it's built into the approval, which I think is really a, a neat thing. Yeah, yeah. And, 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 you know, the cool thing is we learn more about these drugs, and particularly, we, you know, we were talking about trailokinumab earlier on, you know, it's a two-week uh, two dosing, but, you know, if you're clear, almost clear, um, yeah, 16 weeks into it, they allow you to go to every four weeks, and the efficacy is really quite good. So we have these new molecules in play that you're out either allowed to either increase the dose or spread out the duration in the case of, you know, trailokinumab uh, and, and injection. Um the last thing I want to touch on, Ted, is is uh, is laboratory blood draws, and you know dermatologists really don't like drawing blood, but look, you know we've had enough training uh, with methotrexate, with cyclosporin, and we're still administering isotretinoin, which requires monthly blood draws, but we're kind of taking a look, obviously, at isotretinoin. How much blood drawing do we need to do? What do you see yourself doing in say, 22 year old, otherwise healthy, atopic dermatitis patient, and you put them on a Jack one? and pick your flavor. And what are you gonna tell this individual how often you have to draw his blood? So I do not believe that there's guidance on that as there isn't on most of the biologic drugs we use now for psoriasis. It's use your medical sense and just decide, which basically is throwing the ball in your court. I believe in baselines because I don't wanna be caught off guard, right? So because there is some risk, and you've already mentioned this, George, with some jacks, not necessarily all of them, but there is some risk of cytopenias. So hematologic side effects are potential. So I don't want to start a jack on someone who's already anemic, thrombocytopenic, leukopenic. I want to know they have a decent CBC. I think a comprehensive medical, a comprehensive metabolic panel is reasonable thing to do because what we just talked about, you wanna make sure that they have good renal function and that they have good hepatic function. There isn't some hidden thing. And if you find elevated, and this has happened to me, it's probably happened to every one of our listeners. You've got a, a metabolic panel just because you thought it was a good thing to do and you find out, four to five to six times upper limits and normal of liver function tests. And they had, you know, minimally symptomatic hep C and nobody knew about it. So you have to go make sure it gets treated. So I think a, a, a metabolic panel to make sure that liver's working, the kidney's working, right? I mentioned the hep B, hep C, TB. I think those things should be as part of a baseline we talked at great length about pregnancy. So at least a baseline and George already made this point that a fair number of women do not know that they're pregnant early on and, oh, I'm not pregnant. And you start the jack inhibitor and then they call you up three weeks later and say, oh, guess what? Mm -hmm. So I want to know they're not pregnant to start with. So those are the kind of things I think you should start with as in terms of repeating, um, I ask usually, this is what I do with the biologics. Are you seeing your primary care doctor? Do you go at least once a year? What's the timing? If they're seeing their, their primary care doctor six months from when I did the draw, then there's another draw six months later. I feel very happy about that. Uh, 
you could do less, you could do Q3 months, but I think somewhere in there is a happy medium, three to six months. And maybe one of those draws isn't one that you necessarily have to order. You just get the results back. But I'd keep an eye on the CBC. I'd keep an eye on the comprehensive metabolic panel for sure. And a pregnancy test, I'm not sure exactly how I'm going to deal with that. You know, it's already a pain in the neck to do that with some of our other drugs. But, you know, you want to make sure because stuff happens. And if that happens, you need to explain to the patient there may be some risk. Although, look, the, the data on, on fetotoxicity and teratogenicity relied upon mammals who got massive doses, you know, six times up to 73 times the recommended dose. So I, I think it's less likely to be a problem, but you don't want to be the cause, the blame. You don't want to take the blame for that. So I yeah. think maybe repeat pregnancy tests are in reasonable order. Yeah, and, and you know, my status, I mean, we clearly live in a very litigious society. Um, and I agree with you 100% on getting all the baseline comprehensive, you know, testing that's needed to start. Then you have this peace of mind and goodness knows we practice medicine long enough, Ted, how many hep C's have we picked up or positive quantiferon golds with some latent TB? I mean, yep. it's just good because a lot of these people, we end up being their primary care physician. But I also believe that at three to four months out, I'm going to recheck like a CBC, a chemistry profile, and probably a CPK and see how they're doing. And, and if everything looks good then, and I've got an otherwise healthy individual, you know, I'm, I'm probably kind of good for a year unless the patient complains of something's changed, you know, and then it's like, okay, then we need to investigate. But, and I agree, I tried to time their annual visit with their doctor. Oh, you haven't seen your GP in it. Why don't you go see him about three, three months? And here's the labs I want them to draw when they screen you for your overall thing. And you're right. So then, you know, the, we'll get some data from the GP. And then we, we follow our patients who are on these, these drugs usually every six months. Um, and uh, once we, we usually see them at three, see how they're doing. But uh, for certainly by six months, you should see how these patients are doing. Yeah, I, I would agree. Just remember that little trick of trying to tie it in with the primary care provider because that's one less blood draw. It's one less thing you have to do on the electronic medical record. And it's one less thing you have to kind of keep track of and make sure they got it done you know, let the primary care doctor do some of that and just send you the results. And then you're good for a while. Yeah. Ted, last thoughts. Uh, you got two biologics, you got two jacks. Wow. Uh, we have an embarrassment of riches now. And, um, and, and what, what would you tell the audience uh, out there as they think about, oh my gosh, now I'm really confused. What, what are your last thoughts? Yeah, I'm confused too. So join the crowd. I, I, look, the bottom line is we had all those things I talked about at the very beginning, and they all had serious problems, serious. And we now have things that have maybe a risk, but maybe not very much serious problem. And I think that's important to contrast you know, we're not talking azathioprine, methotrexate, mycophenolate, cyclosporin anymore. And we're not talking about dragging people in to get phototherapy. So then they love that because it's just time and time and time and pay for parking and everything else. So these are more convenient and they are as, as or more efficacious than what we had before. And 
I think an objective presentation to your patients and sort of let them guide you as to what they'd like to do or what they'd like to think about. I will probably continue to use the biologic drug as first volley, simply because I'm used to it. The risks are minimal. Understanding that the new drugs are better. I, George mentioned it. I'm going to repeat it again. If you look at Easy 75, especially if you get past that, if you look at Easy 90 and even Easy 100, these just beat the hell out of the biologic drugs. There's just no two, no two ways around it. So, you know, and if you look at IgA, clear or almost clear, they may not beat the hell out of the biologic drugs, but they're better. They're just better. So I think I'm going to probably still start with my biologic drug, the one I'm used to using, which is Dupi. And then I am going to, though, when I first discuss systemic therapy with a patient who requires it, I'm going to plant the seed that we have these other drugs. They're newer. They are more powerful. It's a little more complicated. It's going to take some blood draw. It's a pill, not a shot. And even if they choose the biologic drug a little with my urging, I want them not to go into this thinking that the pills are, oh my God, my whole life is going to cross before my eyes taking these and I'm not going to make it. I don't want that. I want to present it in a positive light, even if I start with the biologic drugs. So I have the backup. Yeah, I, you know, I, 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 it's, it's hard to move away from one of the best, safest drugs that we've ever used in dermatology. And I, you know, I think I'm very anxious now that we have access to two quote pills that outperform Dupi to really put it on the table with a patient saying, you are not a rheumatoid arthritis patient with a bunch of comorbidities. You're an otherwise healthy 22 year old. You have a choice between a pill and a shot and nothing prevents us from starting out on one and going to the other. As a matter of fact, you know, my colleagues who are a little bit more experienced uh, with the oral jacks are using UPA uh, as a rescue remedy for dupe failures and achieving success. So with that knowledge, it's like, you know, you want a pill or a shot. And, and then that's kind of the way I'll lay it out for the patient, knowing the efficacies are really quite amazing. And, and if they want to dive into the safety, happy to talk to them about safety. And so, you know, it's kind of an either or. And again, nothing prevents you, the viewer out there, from switching from one to another. Listen, but if your patient is doing great on their current therapy, why switch? Don't change horses midstream. It's really, it's gotta be about the patient preference. And it's gotta be a shared decision. And so that's the way we'll put it. It's, once again, it's gonna come down to a shared educated decision. And Ted uh, and I, I hope that we've given our audience out there enough information to help in making that shared decision. Yeah, I hope I hope so. I, I, I think both of us would like you to give these new drugs their due. Remember, they're good, they're potent, they're powerful, they outdo the biologic drugs. It's a little more complicated for everybody, but do not go into this, oh, we've got new drugs, but they're oh, so scary. They shouldn't be. And that's really the message I'd like you to take away from our discussion. This has been an exclusive podcast with the Dermatology Digest. Find more at www.thedermdigest.com. Thank you for joining us.